Yeah, it's really pretty, pretty neat to think about. I hope everybody had a great uh, Christmas, a meaningful Christmas uh, this past week. You know, in the Christmas story, um, there are, of course, you know, the main characters, right? The main people. There's always Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And there's always the shepherds and the angels, you know, and, um, and the wise men. But I want to suggest to you uh, this morning that there's also some sort of B players in the uh, Christmas story. Some kind of lesser known people that are also part of the Christmas story. And uh, they're people who are sometimes deemed less important than kind of the main people. And uh, especially by our human culture. And, uh, you know, they're the kind of people that uh, they don't show up too often on your Christmas cards. Uh, They don't have little figurines that show up around the manger scene. You know, we don't write Christmas carols about these people very much. Uh, But in some ways, spiritually speaking, these people may be more important when it comes to preparing for Christmas and uh, preparing to have Jesus Christ come uh, into our lives on a personal level. In fact, I think God suggests that uh, it's more normal that these sort of B people are kind of the key players in some of the major events. Um, In 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, God writes these words to, I think, all of us. Consider your worldly standing, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what's low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification, and our redemption. And therefore, as it's written, let no one who boasts, boast except in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so, you know, when you think about this, uh, God's for us, kind of just normal people. Christmas is for us. It's for, if you will, the B uh, players. It's for people whose faith is real. It's for people who believe the promises of God and as a result live with a sense of expectation about the future. When you think about the future, do you have a sense of expectation because of the promises that you believe that God's made about what's going to happen in the future? Do we live with that sense of expectation about what God has in store for us? People who are prepared for Christmas by believing what God says about the future. And uh, people who understood from God's word that the promised Messiah was going to be born. These kind of B players in the Christmas story, um, I think maybe they even understood the book of Daniel. And they knew about the timing as to when the Messiah was going to come. And so they were on the alert and they were looking because they took God's word at face value. And so when he came, they were able to recognize him for who he really is. They were prepared for Christmas. Well, there was a man named Simeon um, who is a man like that. Um, The man named Simeon in the Bible, we read about him in Luke's gospel. He's part of the Christmas story, but we really don't know too much about this guy. He just sort of shows up. 
We don't know who he's related to. We don't know anything about his family. We don't even know what tribe he comes from. Um, we get the impression that he's older, but we don't know for sure. Uh, we don't know what career he had. We don't know much about him. We don't know if he had any money or not. We don't know where he lived. We don't know if he was popular. But we're told some things about him that's true about people who are believers and followers of Jesus, people who are prepared for Christmas. We're told that he was a righteous man and that he was devout. And, very interesting phrase, he was somebody who was living in expectation. He was looking for the consolation of Israel. He had, he had a, a promise from God that he held on to that drove his living. He was looking for the consolation of Israel, is the phrase that's used. Uh, and um, the Holy Spirit was on him. We, we read about him in Luke chapter 2, in verse 25, he just sort of appears and here's what it says. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. I'm intrigued by that phrase, waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was living with a sense of expectation. He was filled, in other words, with hope about the future. He was confident about the future. And, uh, you know, there are three, three kind of uh, marks of a healthy Christian life, faith, hope, and love, right? They're the three major marks that uh, show up in a, in a believer's life. Faith is our orientation towards the past, right? Faith is always the product of the past. Faith, faith comes because we believe what God said and what God did in the past, and so we put our faith in God because of what he said and what he did and, and the history. And, and uh, we can kind of track all that he's done and so on. Um, faith, hope is our orientation towards the future. And it's based on the promises that God makes about what's going to happen in the future. Faith, hope, and then love. Love is the major virtue for the present. To love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the major virtue for the present. So faith, hope, and love are the three major marks that show up in every uh, believer's life. And Simeon, in particular, in this verse 25, uh, with this phrase, you know, waiting for the consolation of Israel was a person whose life was filled with hope when it came to the future. And so he was looking for Christmas to come. He knew that the Messiah was going to come, waiting for the consolation of Israel. You ever think about that word? What does it mean? I think for years I just read over it, said, oh, I don't understand that, and just kept reading, right? Consolation. The word consolation comes from the word console. Console or comfort. Uh, to uh, relieve the grief of somebody, right? To console somebody is to uh, look for the consolation, the comforting of Israel. The idea of alleviating grief. You know, when things are bad, we look for somebody to come alongside of us and console us, to say some things that maybe we haven't thought about that enable us to get off of a bad place and to find a better place. And God had promised Israel that someday he would make it better for his people. He was going to send a Messiah, somebody who would deliver them from their problems. And this guy was looking for the consolation of Israel, the consoling of Israel. You know, things weren't good at the time of Christmas 
in uh, Israel and in Jerusalem. Uh, there was no political independence for Israel. The Romans occupied their land. And the guy, Herod, that they put over the Jewish people in uh, this Roman province, you know, was a cruel guy. Remember, he killed all the babies under two because of his own insecurity, trying to get rid of Jesus because he heard that he was born a king. And so things weren't politically good. Uh, not only that, but um, God hadn't given a new word to his people in 400 years. From the close of the Old Testament until the opening of the New Testament, about 400 years, there was just silence from God. No new prophets, no new scripture, nothing came from heaven. No new message from God. So there was this kind of silence until the New Testament opens up with uh, four accounts of Christmas. So from the end of the Old Testament all the way to Christmas, there's just this silence from God spiritually. And then on top of that, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, they had, um, I think, reduced their uh, calling uh, to being officiators of an externalized religion based on fear. And they just kept making more and more rules for people. And instead of understanding that God loved them and that God is sending a Messiah and, that, and being like Simeon and looking forward to this consolation, uh, they were trying to bring it about on their own. And so things were bad. And like lots of people feel about how things are today. Uh, I talk to a lot of people and they, when you say, well, how do you think things are going in the world today? And a lot of people are pretty shook up. A lot of people don't feel like the future is as bright as when we were younger, you know, for lots of different reasons. But Simeon was waiting for the consolation, waiting for the promise of God to show up. And so he lived with that sense of expectation about what God was going to do. God's going to send a savior, a messiah, a consoler, uh, a comforter. And um, he lived with that sense of expectation, so he lived with hope. And uh, that's what drove his living. Today, believers should be living with the same sense of expectation and hope. Uh, the consolation, we're waiting for the consolation of the church. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. We're waiting for the promise that God has made around the return of Christ and uh, occupying the place that God has given us until such a time. The true church will be vindicated. Uh, there's one more thing we know about uh, Simeon here from this passage, and that's that the Holy Spirit was on him. It says the Holy Spirit was on him. In verse 25 and 26, the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he was living with this promise that he was going to see the Messiah before he died. And the Holy Spirit had revealed that to him. Now what's unusual about this is the fact that it's before Pentecost. The Bible says that, you know, after Pentecost happened, every believer is occupied by the Spirit of God. So we probably don't appreciate how big a deal it was for this guy Simeon before Pentecost to be filled with the Spirit of God and to be influenced on an everyday basis by the very Spirit of God. Because that's our privilege once we become Christians. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about everything, almost everything, but when it gets down to specific things of deciding what to do and where to go today and who to marry and, and what to read and who to pick for friends and how to divide our time and so forth, 
the guidance of the Holy Spirit takes those principles in the scriptures and applies them on a personal level. In other words, Simeon was living in a personal relationship with the living God by the Holy Spirit. And so you read here, and, and it's the Holy Spirit who directs him to go to the temple, and it's the Holy Spirit that helps him to recognize who Jesus really is. Some people think that Jesus was maybe, um, you know, like eight days old when his parents brought him to the temple to be circumcised according to the laws of Moses. So how would you know that this is the Messiah? Unless you're in tune with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit reveals to you on a, on a personal basis uh, the reality of who Jesus really is. And so, you know, all over the Bible, uh, it seems to me, well, let me just read this next verse, verse 27. It says, uh, he came in the spirit to the temple. Simeon came to the temple in the spirit uh, when his parents, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. And Simeon took him in his arms and uh, blessed God and then uh, responded. But um, all over the Bible, the Bible says, God says to us, gives us an invitation. He says, listen, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. Anybody who wants can be as close to God as they want. God says, you draw near to me. If you're sincere about it and so forth, you draw near to me, and uh, I'll draw near to you. In uh, the book of James, let me read a couple of verses uh, where James comes right out and uses those words in James chapter 4. Uh, do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the scripture says God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. And therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You draw near to God and God will draw near to you. In um, Hebrews, we're encouraged again. In um, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our times of need. The invitation is always there, God. Draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. So anybody can be as close to God as they desire. And especially on this side of Christmas... And this side of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes and facilitates that relationship. But way back in Jeremiah chapter 29, 29 you might remember, you know, uh, you will seek me and find me, God says, when you seek for me with all your heart. If you're casual about it and ho-hum about it and just curious, but you're not convinced that there is a God and so forth and you don't pursue him with all your heart, well, God knows that. But Simeon lived in this personal relationship with God. I, I picture Simeon as kind of a lookout for Jesus. God gave him an assignment that, you know, when my son comes, you're going to identify him and you're going to announce it to people that he's here. That's your job. You're kind of a watchman, if you will, or a, a lookout for uh, Jesus. And so anyway, he goes to the temple. He ID, identifies the Messiah. And um, in Luke chapter 2, then he says this. After he holds the child, he takes Jesus in his arms. And he says, Lord... Uh, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. 
He's like, I've completed my assignment. I've stood watch. I lived with this sense of expectation. I waited and waited, and finally, he's come. He's done his job. Uh, he, he stayed at his post, right, uh, living with this sense of expectation. And uh, it reminds me of the Apostle Paul. In um, Acts chapter 20, I thought about uh, using this passage uh, today, uh, but thought better of it. But in Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, and um, he gets together with the elders of the Ephesian church, where Paul had a special affinity and, and had spent a lot of time uh, with the church there in Ephesus. And he gets together with them on the beach. You might, re- might remember this scene. And here's what he says to the elders. He said, you remember you know, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me every day uh, in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Okay? And then he says it again in um, verse 27. He says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. It was important for Paul to be able to say that he didn't shrink from the taking on the assignment, and now he was ready to die. And, of course, he goes to Jerusalem, and then he uh, gets up to Rome, and and he does die there. And um, Paul was ready for that. Because why? Because he had done what God had asked him to do. He had fulfilled his assignment. And so Simeon similarly says, you know, I know what I'm here to do, and now that I've met the Messiah, uh, now, Lord, you can dismiss me, and so on. And so Simeon spoke of Jesus in this passage as God's salvation. He says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Uh, The word there that's used in the Greek language is not the normal word for salvation. It literally means my eyes have seen the one fit to save people. Or the one fitted, if you will, to save people. Uh, So that was the idea. There is one person who is qualified to save people from the wrath of God that we all deserve because of our rebellion against him. And there is nobody else. Uh, He was, in fact, God in human form. His name would be Emmanuel, God with us. He was sinless. And only a sinless person could die for somebody else's sins. Anybody else dying uh, would have to die for their own sin. So only God could really pay the price. And Simeon recognized that Jesus was, in fact, Emmanuel, God with us. Only God could conquer death. And only God could lift the sentence of death on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice in our place. And not only that, but Jesus chose to love people. When you follow Jesus around through his life, it's obvious he cared and he loved people. He didn't need people very interesting to think about this because there's no other God that presents himself that people worship as a trinity. There's no other God like that. There's every other God sort of needs company, if you will, or needs people. But our God, the God of the Bible, the God of the Father of Jesus Christ, presents himself as three persons in one and has this sense of community. So it's not that he needs people, 
but it's that the three choose to love people. And it is a choice. And so Jesus, when he came, chose to love people. And it's out of that love that he sacrificed his life on Calvary's cross. And that's why, you know, the Bible uh, says in Acts chapter 4, there is salvation in no one else. There is, I know that we live in a culture that says, you know, well, all roads lead to God. Well, that's just not true. It's just not true. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given among men whereby we might be saved. There is only one Savior, and he came from heaven. And so it's interesting, too, that in this passage, this Simeon, he says, mine eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people. Jesus is not a secret. Christmas is the single most significant celebration there is in the world. It's the largest celebration in the entire world. My eyes have seen the salvation that you've created in the presence of all people. Christmas is the largest celebration, you know, in the entire world. It's not like this is done in secret. Um, Not only that, but the Bible is the single most reproduced book in the entire world. The Bible is the single, is, is the book that is translated into more languages than any other book in the entire world. God has prepared. Jesus is not a secret. He's prepared this salvation through Jesus in the presence of the whole world. And he's for Gentiles and for Jews, verse 32. He's a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. He's light to the Gentiles. You know, the world back then and the world today is in the dark, right? A lot of darkness. Uh, I don't think the world realizes how spiritually dark it really is. I think the world thinks of itself, um, you know, as really kind of savvy and kind of sophisticated and progressive and advanced. And the world doesn't realize it's on a collision course with the wrath of God over the evil and over the rejection and rebellion uh, of human beings against our creator. Maybe you've read some of this too. I was fascinated by this. Um, In the news lately, uh, there's uh, reports of thousands and thousands of people in Sweden, of all places, um, that are getting these little uh, chips the size of a grain of rice uh, put under their skin on their hand. Thousands and thousands of people. And That little chip takes the place of all credit cards. It takes the place of the keys that open your house and and do your car, you know. And it has a built-in GPS so that you can put it in kids and never lose them. If you've ever lost a kid, you'd consider doing that, right? I remember when my daughter got lost at the mall one time. And uh, (laughs) she was uh, found by a security person. And um, when mom went to get her and grandma, they were shopping together, uh, the security guy was given her candy. And so she looked straight at mom and grandma and said, I don't know those people. And <laughs> she wanted to keep the candy coming, right? But listen, I encourage you, you Google this, um, uh, Microchips Sweden, and see all the news articles that are written about this. And then I challenge you to read Revelation 13 and 14 and ask yourself, what's really going on here? 
You know, the book of Revelation is uh, the very first verse says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's well worth the investment to try to understand. I know it's a difficult book to understand. And uh, over the years, we've picked at it and tried to help people get a grip on it with uh, comparing it to other passages of scripture and so forth. But Jesus is the light that comes into the darkness and enlightens us about what's really going on. And so while the world thinks it's getting more sophisticated and savvy and, you know, technology is uh, helping the whole thing along, uh, Jesus is revealing to us the light that's in the midst of the darkness. But you know, when he came the first time, uh, John chapter 3 and verse 19 said, you know what, people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil and they just wanted to stay in the dark because guess what happens when light comes into your life? It exposes the truth. And then we have to deal with the truth. But that's the whole point. Jesus came to give us a way to deal with the truth and uh, to be able to uh, be reconciled to God. And so um, Romans chapter 1, same thing. The light has come into the world, but people repress the light. You know, God has made himself known, but people don't want to know him. And so even at Christmas time, maybe you sense this year by year, I noticed it a lot this year, but um, an awful lot of the things that are said in the news and, and in different uh, uh, outlets and so forth is, you know, that's the spirit of Christmas. Something will happen, you know, I think a dog got lost and 900 miles away, somebody found it and gave it back to the owner. That's the spirit of Christmas. No, Christ is the spirit of Christmas. People want the spirit of Christmas without Christ. Christ is the spirit of Christmas. Yeah, the, the Second Corinthians chapter 3, the Lord is the spirit and the spirit is the Lord. Christ is the spirit of Christmas. And it's sad that people want the spirit of Christmas without the Christ of Christmas. He's the light to the Gentiles, but so many people ignored him. And um, verse 32 says, he's the glory of your people Israel. Israel already had a lot of light. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, right? Old Testament. Israel already had a lot of light that God gave them that pointed to Jesus. And um, uh, uh, God's word pointed directly to Jesus, but so many people missed it. Uh, Jesus is the Messiah that the Jewish people are uh, looking for. He's their glory. He's their vindication before the world. But unlike Simeon, right, most failed to recognize him when he came. And so missed out on the glory of God. Glory belongs to God. Uh, glory is from God. And uh, I think we need to ask ourselves, you know, is Jesus our light and our glory? Is Jesus our light? Is that where we look to, to understand everyday life and what's going on and what's going to happen in the future? Is Jesus the light of our life? Um, do we, uh, you know, hang on every word that he says? Do we make a, 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 an effort to read the Bible so that we can know what he says? Uh, do we talk to him in prayer, 21 days of prayer? Um, do we talk to him because we want him to explain to us the steps that we should take in our everyday life do we depend on his spirit like Simeon did and when we boast about anything what is it that we boast about what do we find ourselves talking about the most do you remember these words back here in Jeremiah um, long time ago God says this thus says the Lord Jeremiah chapter 9 
let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. What do you boast about? You hang all your degrees on the wall and say, look at me. You know, I spent all this money in college or I've got all this debt and now I've got all these degrees and so forth. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, God says. And let not the mighty man boast in his might. Right? And um, let not the rich man boast in his riches. Well, what are we supposed to boast about? What's, what's special about us? But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, God says. You want something to boast about? You want something to build your life around? You want a core to everything else in your life? Boast about the fact that you've gotten to know the living God on a personal level by his Holy Spirit. Let him boast about knowing and understanding me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love. I'm into justice and righteousness on the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. What do we boast about? Is he our light and is he our glory, our boast, our light and our glory? So Simeon um, found peace with God, okay, Uh, because uh, he had fulfilled God's assignment for him. He had uh, identified Jesus and he held him in his arms. And uh, next verse says this, um, after he said all of that, um, and Jesus' father and his mother marveled at what was at what was said about him. So Joseph and Mary are marveling about what? About what he said about him. And uh, I think they marveled because Simeon understood who Jesus was. And uh, he understood the future and and so forth. And uh, so the next verse, verse 34, says, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. I'm like, man, Simeon, why couldn't you just have stopped with verse 32? Why are you telling mom this stuff of what's going to happen to Jesus? And uh, what Simeon is saying is that um, Jesus is going to be a great divider. He's going to be a polarizing influence. Some people are going to rise with him, and some people are going to refuse him. Some people are going to rise, and some people are going to fall. He's going to be a great divider. A person's attitude and faith in Christ is going to be the decisive, determining factor in regards to their eternal destiny. What you do with Christ determines whether you end up in heaven or hell. It's God's offer of forgiveness and salvation and heaven, and eternal life. But to reject him is to invite hell into our future. Some people will reject him, some will accept him, and people will be polarized by him. You know, Jesus' claims are so outrageous that you either have to agree with him or you have to ignore him and disagree with him. His claims to be God, his claims to be God's salvation, and, and so forth, it, it, it creates conflict. Uh, even, um, he, even his mother and his, his uh, family, you know, in uh, Mark chapter 3, uh, his family heard about what was going on when he was teaching and so forth. And it, Mark chapter 3 and verse 21 says his family heard about it and they went out to seize him for they were saying, he's out of his mind. That's his own family. 
Jesus is out of his mind. Mary trying to stop Jesus from doing what God sent him to do. The blessed Mary. And his family. Opposing him. His purpose and so forth. And so you either are for him or you're against him. And uh, there's no um, kind of neutral. There's no uh, not making a commitment one way or the other. You know, uh, in our day, I think in our world, uh, we embrace, embrace the idea of tolerance. You know, everybody's got to be tolerant of everything. That's what's politically correct. And Jesus comes along and says, no, you know, there are some things I will not tolerate. There are some things that are non-negotiable, absolute truth, and they cannot be uh, negotiated. You know, and um, so what does that do? Well, it creates conflict. Um, it creates conflict between people. It creates conflict in people, right? Don't you have that experience? In um, uh, Luke chapter 12, uh, again, Jesus, uh, Jesus is talking um, in Luke chapter 12. If I can find it. And uh, Jesus says, um, you know, that he's, he's divisive. Verse 49. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth and... Uh, would that it was already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. I know I have to go to the cross. And I'm distressed until it's, I can't wait for this to be over. This is Jesus living, you know, in, in his first, you know, 30 years or so. And he says, uh, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house... There will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They'll be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, and so on. There'll be conflict. Why? Because Jesus' truth is non-negotiable. It's not, it's, it's, it's intolerable to change. It's intolerable to alter. And we live in a culture that finds that to be a real threat. Uh, we, we become part of that when we don't hide our connection to Jesus. We become part of the conflict. We become annoying to some people. Some people are thrilled and rise and are so happy that we're telling them the truth. But other people are challenged and hate us for exposing uh, the reality of, of who Jesus is and what he's actually done and so forth. It says, uh, Simeon says to Mary, you know, uh, this Jesus is a sign and he'll be opposed. Now, it's interesting. He's a sign. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus as a sign. When I think of a sign, I think a sign always points away from itself. Jesus points to his father, right, as a sign. And uh, really, the sign of Jesus says this way to God. Uh, John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody goes to the Father but through me. Well, is that negotiable? Does that sound like something we can, you know, negotiate with and, and maybe challenge and say, well, you know, there's other gods and they say other things and, Jesus says, no, uh, Simeon recognized that Jesus was a sign from God. This is the way to God. I am the way. Nobody goes to the Father but through me, and so forth. And so 
He claimed to be one with God, and the majority spoke against him, opposed him, contradicted him, argued with him, refused to acknowledge him for who he is, and ultimately crucified him. They chose their traditions, and they stuck to their own understanding rather than to seriously give consideration to his claims, even though their own scriptures clearly pointed to him. And so it is today as well. It's not possible to stay neutral about Jesus. His claims are too outrageous. You're either for him or you're against him. You either believe him or you don't believe him. Um, Again, uh, the last part of verse 35 says this. Um, He's a sign that is opposed and a sword, kind of in parentheses here, Uh, Simeon says to Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. But look at the last part of this verse. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Here's the thing about Jesus. He's going to be the truth and he's going to be the light. And the thoughts of our hearts get revealed whenever we're around him. The closer we get to him, the more exposed we become. And that's why people love darkness more than light. And that's why people keep their distance from Jesus. Right? And Simeon says, no, this is the Messiah. This is the one who's come from heaven. He's a light for the Gentiles. He's Israel's glory. But both the Gentiles and Israel, for the most part, missed him. Um, And so Jesus came to bring peace on earth. But in order to bring peace on earth, he was going to do it by getting rid of evil and wickedness. And that creates conflict uh, both uh, between people and inside of people. And I think the bottom line on all of this is either God is first in our lives, you know, or he's not God. Whatever is first in our life is our God. Whatever we give the most attention to is what takes the place of God. Nobody can have two firsts in their life. And so we talk about God first in order for him to be God. And so here's the question I'd like to leave with you this morning. Uh, Is Jesus your light and your glory? Is Jesus your boast, your glory? Like, this is the best thing about my life is Jesus, you know? And is Jesus our light? Is, uh, do we really hang on his words? Do we trust his words? Do we live with that sense of expectation for the future? Uh, do we live something like Simeon? Um, Jesus is our glory, the one we brag about, the one we want to please. And like Simeon, are we living with that sense of expectation when it comes to the future? Are we looking for Jesus to return? And uh, while our lives might have to wrestle with all kinds of conflicts, both inside and and outside of us now, uh, are we still filled with hope and expectation about the future? And so at the dawn of a new year, tomorrow's New Year's Eve, at the dawn of a whole new year, 2019, as we kind of assess the condition maybe of our faith, our hope, and our love. And maybe we even set some goals, you know, around there. I hate to say resolutions because everybody knows what they're about. But to set some goals around our faith as we assess our relationship with God, where are we really at? What condition is our faith in? What condition is our hope in? Are, Are we different in the world in which we live? Because while everybody's looking at the future and feeling depressed, We Christians, we're optimistic. We know that Jesus is coming back. We know that there's solutions to all the world's problems. And and it just changes us. Are we animated by that spirit of hope? 
because of the promises of God. And maybe we get committed to studying this next year, the promises of God a little bit more. And are we animated by love for other people in the present? Where are we really at? I'd like to hold out Simeon as an example or a model of somebody that we could shoot for being like in 2019. Um, Simeon was righteous. He was devout. You see, there's there's four things about Simeon. We could have had four sermons at one today. I just kind of focused on the uh, consolation of Israel and the hope for the future. But uh, he was righteous. He was devout. He was full of hope and a sense of expectation about what God's going to do in the future. And he was led by the Spirit, not his own inclinations. I think if I was Simeon and I was waiting and waiting and waiting and and I was getting older and, boy, you know, Jesus hadn't come yet and silence for 400 years, I'd be like, you know, I'm ready to give up. And I'm going to follow my own. I know that God said he's coming and I'm not going to die until I see him and so forth. But, you know, I'm tired of going to the temple every day. I'm tired of running after every couple that comes in here with a little baby. And is that him? Is that him? Is that him? People think I'm weird. You know, they're afraid I'm going to snatch their babies or whatever. But not Simeon. He was led by the Spirit. And so he wasn't led by his own inclinations, his own impulses, but by the very Spirit of God. May God have his way with each of us in 2019, both in 2019 and forever, right, after that. May Jesus be our light and our glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for Christmas and for the gift that it is to us, an inexpressible, indescribable gift that you have given to us in Jesus. And Father, we recognize and acknowledge before you this morning that everything good in this life and in the life to come comes as a gift from you wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. We know that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus And I pray, Heavenly Father, that uh, we would learn a lesson or two from Simeon this morning. And that especially as he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, this sense of uh, expectation about you coming through on your promises. And I pray that we, too, Father, would focus on those promises that you've made to us. And that we would live with a sense of expectation and hope. And that as a result of that, your spirit would have freedom to direct our lives to fit into your cause and into your plans. And that, Father, that light and that glory that Jesus is to us would be reflected off of us onto other people so they might like, be like Simeon too, that they might be able to depart in peace because they've seen the light and the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.